Micro will play along with all of them. Uh, and and it's, it's the most conformable. It's just like a phone. The reason you have a phone with you is because it goes right in your pocket. And the reason you don't have a laptop with you is it doesn't, period. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. Five years ago, micromobility didn't even exist as a term. Today, more than £6 billion has been invested in e-bike and e-scooter startups, and micromobility has gone from non-existent ubiquitous in what feels like a flash. While not everyone saw this coming, one person certainly did. Horace Dediu is an industry analyst previously specialising in microcomputing and in 2017 he invented the category name Micromobility and it stuck. Today Horace is co-founder of Micromobility Industries and a world expert in this transformative new technology. He joins me on the Freewheeling podcast to discuss what Micromobility is, where it is going and how it will interact with traditional public transport. Horace Dediu, Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast. Now, let's, um, let's start with your, where your interest in micromobility came from. Your career has been as an analyst and your focus for the last decade or so has been Apple. So where did, where did micromobility come from? I, you know, I only got into Apple because I was at Nokia. And I only got into Nokia because in about 1998, uh, I thought the future of computing would be in handheld devices. And uh, that came to be realized about 15 years later. And um, that, to me, was was a, was a force that was in, inexorable. You know that we're all going to have mobile computing, and um, uh, the the society pivoted around them, so that we have new media, new ways of communications, new ways of organizing ourselves, and new ways of even doing harm. And and as as that was happening, I went back to Clay Christensen, who was my my advisor. Um, he had written this book on 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 in the, the the way innovation happens in the world, which is called the um, disruption, and he called it the innovator's dilemma. Um, I I began to think about could we use this knowledge that we learned about computing and how it transformed the world to uh, predict what would happen in other industries with respect to disruption. So I. I I thought about energy, which I thought was a big deal. And, you know, we're talking 2015 and asking what's going to happen to the world with global warming, for example. So we need to sort out energy. Other people were handling things like education. It wasn't my, my work, but it was at the same institute. So we have people hand, handling education and poverty and, and development and all these big, big problems. And so I started looking at energy. And once you look at energy, you see some things are going to go in the right direction and some things are going to go in the wrong direction. So the right direction was going to be power plants. We're going to get greener. We're going to have more solar energy. We're going to have more uh, wind energy. So a lot of that stuff can be transitioned and it can be done through the stroke of a pen. Literally, a pen is all you needed to solve those problems. Um, what, what was not so easy was transportation. And so when I thought about it, I said, oh, I better get to know that industry. And I, I dug deep into automotive. And I spent two, two three years looking at automotive industry, uh, just, just to understand how it could be disrupted, because it had gone through that. You know, the Toyota did this 
back in the 70s and 80s with the Toyota production system. Before that, General Motors did it in the 30s and 40s. Uh, and before that, uh, Ford did it in the, uh, in the 19-teens, so a century ago, um, uh, on top of an invention that was refined by the French in the you know, turn, the turn of the century and invented by the Germans in the 1880s. And I, I thought, okay, now comes the next transition into electric, and then comes the next transition into uh, potentially autonomy. And I thought, will this solve the climate problem with transportation? And the answer was a resounding no. And so in terms of the original problem statement, can how do we solve climate change in transportation? Yeah, I think most people think, yeah, electric, that'll work. We, we currently burn carb, we currently burn fossil fuels and generate carbon. If we use electricity to power cars, we'll be all right then. So why did you reach the conclusion that electrifying automotive wasn't going to cut it? Well, it's simple arithmetic, actually, and I just bothered to do it. Um, the, the problem is that... Um, a car um, weighs between 1,500 and 3,000 kilograms, um, maybe the latest, maybe even in America, maybe even bigger. Uh, when you start to look at that object and you say, well, what does it transport? And you, well, it transports a person, actually 1.2 people on average, and that you know, you know, maybe needs two seats, but typically only one is occupied. And then you realize that, okay, that one, uh, occupant that weighs about 100 kilograms, including some, you know, additional objects in the car. You don't need 3,000 kilograms to transport 100 kilograms. If this was a business, this would be the dumbest business in the world. You know, if this was a trucking company or a commercial business, uh, you know, transportation business, uh, it, it would be, you know, or an airliner, it would be atrociously inefficient. But the the idea of electrifying this this object. Um, would mean that it actually gets 50% heavier. We end up with an object that's e e extraordinarily inefficient. But that's not even the worst thing. The worst thing is that the total number of cars that people need and use is growing. It's been growing for a century to the point where actually in the last 20 years, it has doubled. The car fleet has doubled from about 500 million units in the year 2000 in to uh, 1.1 billion in the year 2020, and it's likely to double yet again in the next 20 years. And you might ask, well, who the heck needs another billion cars? Well, the answer is the developing world needs 1.1 billion at least. Um, that's where the growth has been in the last 20, and it will be in the next 20. Where we need to reduce emissions by 50%, uh, it looks like we'll be doubling them. And so we're now you know, in 2015. At the time, I, mean, I think you were the person who first used the word micromobility. At the time, the micromobility market that we now know and you know, is a huge scale and with huge amounts of investment didn't exist. So where did it come from? And how is yeah. it linked to, you know, when was it first used? When, when did you first use that word? And were yeah, you describing crazy. something that was happening or you were catalyzing something that went on to happen? Yeah, in 15, I wasn't really sure uh, what the answer would be. I, I only observed the negative. I observed that 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 everyone's dreams of salvation uh, through electric drive um, would not come true. Um, but my conclusions were not just from arithmetic, as I said, but it was also the understanding of disruption theory, which is that it usually begins at the low end. This is a very important observation because it, it, it when, when at the time and still today, you know, people think about the disruptor being the Teslas or the, um, you know, whatever, rockets going to Mars. 
for billionaires to, to ride in. Um, that is not historically the case. Now, it could, of course, change again, but historically, it, it almost never happens. You know, It always comes from below. So I just, just switch my focus to the bottom. I just switch. I ask the exact opposite question. What is this sort of vehicle that not doesn't uh, uh, encourage you to switch away from your fat uh, SUV, but rather uh, uh, allows you to uh, move away from your uh, shoes into something else. Uh, what you, you, I'm competing with sneakers. I'm competing with walking. I'm competing with possi possibly bicycles. And so what's the next step up from that? Um, and there was a giant leap to an electric car. So it was partly driven by this very, very sort of fundamental, visceral understanding that we are looking uh, in the wrong point on the spectrum. And it suddenly I took a ride on an e-bike and I, I got it. And it wasn't the word micro-mobility. It wasn't at the same time, by the way, so you know, between 15 and 18, there was the, the Chinese bike share boom occurred. And I said, well, that's an interesting asymmetry here. We have something that is light, something that is for uh, competing against walking, it is shared, not owned. It is possibly going to get electric. It's going to communicate. It's going to have software, perhaps sensing, perhaps imaging. Hmm. So you see the pieces coming together. And then in um, about 18, um, uh, these um, scooters, stand-up scooters, which I thought were completely ridiculous uh, compared to bikes. I thought these could not possibly work. Again, even I was fooled by an even lower end product than, than you know, I had assumed the e-bikes were, were an interesting starting point. And this thing took root even below the e-bike. I mean, if you measure the size of wheels, the size of batteries, all these other components, the scooter was the even lower level. You know, these cost hundreds and the e-bike cost thousands. So, um, so then this came and I said, at that moment, that means that we have way too many form factors. We cannot just call this the e-bike market or the you know disruptive bike market. I said we got to come up with a name that encompasses everything. And then I started to really ponder what, how do we define the limits of this? Um, what is in and out, what is out of our category? Um, because one of the things that you you need to do very very early on is get your categorization right. Um, and and I try to you know and it's still. A question of great debate: What is the limit, and what is the boundary of micromobility? And I chose 500 kilograms. Why? Because I looked at a, uh, at the size of cars, and I said before that the average is about 1,500, but there are some cars that go down to almost 1,000 kilograms, but none go below. Maybe maybe 800 is absolutely the limit. Like like a, a smart car is like 800 plus kilos, right? And that's only two seats. But everything below that was was blank until you got to maybe bicycles and motorcycles. And motorcycles are sort of an anomaly we'll have to deal with at some point. But but the bicycle is like 15 kilograms. You get huge, huge uh, negative space. In if you were to plot this as a graph, you just have a big hole there. And I said, well, why can't the bike grow to 500 kilograms? And if it did, uh, how many laws would it break? In the same same way, it's like, well, I didn't. You could ask the question, why, why, why can't a car be 500 kilograms? Turns out it could be, or was um, in the 1950s. In Fiat 500, uh, it wasn't named after the weight, but it happened to be 499 kilograms. And um, and I just made a bet. You know, I, I I put this out there as an open bet to anyone. Uh, I'm I'm willing to bet that there will be no cars as we know them at 500 kilograms ever again.
And so uh, when I chose 500, I explicitly wanted it to be able to grow into that number and in so doing, carry multiple passengers and do so in comfort and do so in protected fashion and do so even at highway speeds. It's all possible. And the real question then, this, this creates an interesting question is, why, for the love of God, can't a car with all the billions of dollars available to invest ever be that size again? Did anyone take you up on your bet? No. <laughs> you, you, you've created a, a definition based on weight. But of course, one of the things that you know, characterizes above and below that weight is above it is pretty much you know, traditional industry, traditional definitions of, 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 of automotive provided by a whole load of traditional manufacturers with some disruptors like Tesla thrown into the mix. And below it is a kind of wild west of largely VC-backed startups scaling incredibly rapidly, um, offering, as you say, a whole bunch of different mobility options. Um, where do you think that's all going to land? That is the really trillion-dollar question. And and why my challenge personally for the last 40 years of my life has been that I have generally been correct about where things were going, but not who would succeed? And I'll, I'll give you the point again, back to my personal history. So, you know, it's 1995, you see the PDA and you say, you know what? Everybody's going to have a computer in their pocket. You're never going to guess Apple would be the one doing it. At the time, you had Palm and then maybe Microsoft. And then, uh, you know, after that, Amazon launches the Kindle. Um, and uh, you, you see uh, startups of all kinds, you know, playing with uh, with touch computing and all these other things. And I joined Nokia in particular because I, I had a, 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 a you know belief in that uh, future, and I chose a company to work for that hopefully would make that future happen. As it turned out, they didn't. Let's assume it's 1900. The car was invented in 1886. At least the pant patent was granted for an internal combustion car, given to Benz. Um, you know, it's been 15 years. Uh, since that invention, lots of people are tinkering. And in fact, there are hundreds and hundreds of car companies already out there. Um, the French are tinkering with, with architectural questions. The language is evolving to include these automotive terms. Uh, uh, infrastructures are developing to uh, support this new uh, technology, including uh, you know, traffic lights and uh, rules of the road and, and uh, driver's licenses and number plates. And all these other things are being invented. Crazy, crazy times. Who would you bet on in 1900 to completely dominate this industry um, and how that industry would actually affect the outcome of two world wars? You couldn't. You couldn't. You probably would have bet on the French because they, they, had, they were the most innovative and prolific. Um, maybe the British, or they were sort of up and coming with some interesting, clever ideas. Our language, by the way, reflects, in English at least, reflects the French influence in the automotive world. Um, we, we have dozens of car, car uh, terms like garage or chauffeur. And so the problem would have been in 1900 that you couldn't have bet on Ford and certainly not on General Motors, which didn't even exist, and certainly not on Volkswagen, which is decades away, uh, or Japan or, or Korea or any of that. You couldn't have bet on any of those. And those are the current top five. Um, nor in, in, in fast forward a century later in the year 2000, whether you could have bet on who would dominate the new internet world. Uh, they would, the dot-com bubble just create hundreds and hundreds of examples of, of companies that were going to dominate and only maybe a handful survived. 
Um, and then you ended up with, with Amazon uh, in retail. You ended up with Google in search and services and um, monetized by advertising, interestingly. You end up with Facebook, which didn't even exist in 2000. Uh, and you ended up with Apple, which at the time was was bare, barely surviving as a company with one product, the Macintosh. What Micro has going for it, it has this, um, this proliferation of entrants, this completely chaotic, unknowable, unforeseeable future, um, this this wild west, as you put it, and um, and you can't even make a bet on like what size of vehicle, what form factor, what business model, because even in the internet days, we didn't know that the whole internet would be fueled by by initially advertising. Um, or you know that Amazon would be undercutting uh, and succeeding on logistics, like literally how to get packages moving through big warehouses and robots, and you know use, do, doing the, the heavy lifting. Or we didn't know that you know in media business would end up what Apple is doing with with creating its own content. You know, who could have thought that a a computer company would be making films? So there's a lot of weirdness that happens along the way where everybody reconfigures themselves in a completely new way. And and um, the experiments that go, uh, every step that goes uh, on, along this path sort of makes sense the next step. But you don't know the, the thousandth step. You don't know how it's going to evolve uh, in the ultimate configuration. And that's, that's why disruption theory is so frustrating. It sort of lets you see far ahead and get a sense of how the the societal processes, the social processes work, but you can't make a bet and say, oh yeah, this will tell me exactly who to bet on and I know exactly when it's going to happen. Those two conditions, who and when, are unknowable. So if we can't do who and when, let's talk about what for a bit. So what's going to happen? And one of the really interesting questions that I come back to is where you started this whole thing, which is how do we deal with climate change and how do we take carbon out of personal transportation? And if you replace a car with an e-scooter or an e-bike or a smaller car, a modern Fiat 500, if someone takes your bet, um, then you you feel like you've, you, you're making great progress towards that destination. But of course, you talked earlier about how you identified micromobility as a thing by looking at the opposite end of the market. What's going to replace walking and cycling? And one of the questions that I've got is what happens if micromobility is a way of electrifying journeys that were previously carbon neutral, and then I still get in my car when I want to go to another city? Yeah, yeah great question. And so, so key to this point then is this, that there's a question of substitution and then there's a, uh, there's a question of uh, new demand creation. Uh, so substitution is when you hope that uh, an inefficient alternative, let's again, go back to the car. You look at the world, 1900, everybody's riding trains and steamers. So trains and, and uh, um, um, train infrastructure is very, very strong. You also have um, uh, coastal uh, uh, traffic and river traffic, canal traffic that, that, that is very uh, efficient. And, um, and in comes this, this you know, smoky machine, um, noisy and, and unreliable. And, um, and, and then you ask yourself, well, obviously, come on, the train is so much better. I can get to any point of in England or even in the in the Great Britain, and it's all in the schedule that 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 you know is public, and you can I can predict exactly how things will run. So it runs like a Swiss watch, 
but the, the new thing didn't actually solve the old problems. It uh, it solved problems that nobody had said existed, um, and and it also created its own demand. Um, but in so doing, over long enough time, but about forty years later, the rail network in the UK began to uh, not collapse but crumble. So the the thing that that it's important here then is is to separate these two questions of substitution and, and replacement. Yes, the car will electrify and the car will begrudgingly reduce its emissions. Although again, I think very, very poorly because initially we have to build a lot of electric cars. Uh, but the that that's taking the 1.1 billion existing cars and trying to swap them out. Hopefully some, and I don't expect more than 10% of the driven miles might substitute to other uh, micro modes. But the challenge is more about there are those who are uh, less able to participate and um, we tend to ignore them. They're not part of the market. They're instinctively discounted. Uh, so you think about elderly. And by the way, in Europe, the elderly are the early adopters of, of electric bicycles. Uh, it allowed them to do things they couldn't do before, uh, which would love be, you know, go out for a ride, which they enjoyed as children. Absolutely powerful. Then you have things like, again, I mentioned children, you know, how do we get children to schools? Maybe if you have, gave them sa safe infrastructure and access to an e-bike, they would actually take those trips. So even in societies that are very wealthy, some of the French parts of it might take up electric mobility when they had no mobility options. They would take perhaps a bus or or or, or, or um, um, a train or something else or, or just not take the journey at all. Um, and then you have the potential, and here's yet another twist about non-consumption, is that all those people driving SUVs all over um, would actually take an extra trip during the day using a new mode. Um, and then you have, you know, hey, that lunch trip, I'm at the office, I'm parked, I don't want to get out of the parking spot, but let me, you know, um, let me see if I can make a, a run an errand using a micro vehicle that happens to be nearby. Or maybe even it's hiding in the, in the trunk of my car. And so you have the potential to create new demand even in existing markets. And this is the process. Again, it happened with the car, it happened with the, with the, with the phone. It, is that people are saying, huh, this is better. They'll say things like, huh, this is cool. This is fun. And they're not going to make a calculation about it. They're not going to go pull out a spreadsheet and, 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 uh, and weigh the cons and the pros. They're just going to go and say, this is fun. This is why I say there's a market for smiles. There's a market for miles. Everyone's focused on it. There's a market for vehicles. Everyone's even more focused on it. There's a market for smiles. Nobody even knows how to measure. Once you get this, this low-end non-consumption uh, unlocked, and, and people realize that there's smiles involved, then you re reorganize everything. You reorganize your capital, you organize your, uh, your, uh, your, your uh, allocation of energy. I mean, the souls of the people involved are, are, are moved to a new place. Then that energy causes the incumbency to crumble as the, uh, as the train did. It's not direct. It's not a direct competition. It's an undermining. It's a subterfuge. It's a, a sapping, a corrosion, an erosion. Now, at the same time, in a parallel universe called Africa or a pal parallel universe called Indonesia or Vietnam or, or India or Bangladesh, all this is happening against non-consumption and no one's really 
you know, defining it. It's like, oh, you know, I'm going to my, uh, to my grandmother's house and we're taking a, a, our vehicle. It happens to be an electric motorbike or, you know, taking a ride on the tuk-tuk and then no one's thinking about it. They're much too busy worrying about real problems. And, and they're all using this new micro mobility, which somebody crazy named it that way, um, to, get, to get through their lives. And they're doing it, and then as a, lo- as, an, as, a, as a consequence, there's a local company that's supplying millions of bikes, millions of electric bikes, or tens of millions, or hundreds of millions, as the case may be in all these countries. And they're just doing what they're doing. And eventually, someone in the boardroom will say, hey, you know, we got a good thing here. Why don't you try to sell it over in France or, or in, 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 uh, in Germany? And then they will, and it's going to be, like, obvious. And, and once they do, they'll be like, the prices will be so low and the quality will be so high. You know how that story goes. And it did so for Japan. It did so for Korea. It did so for China. Um, and, and so perhaps we'll see India as the sort of the micromobility um, uh, juggernaut um, that, that comes in and sweeps over the world in about 15 years. But um, it, they did it because they, they were just following their instincts. There were no strategy involved. Um, Where you end up then is a world, you know, a bit like you know, China, Africa, bypass the desktop PC and just jump straight to mobile computing. And, and banking. And, you know, it, it's, it's pretty obvious as soon as you do the global numbers that only 20% are motorized. If that, it's probably 18, actually, I think. Um, and and that, that took a century a bit more, a uh, hundred years to get twenty percent, uh, and because the target keeps moving. Obviously, you know the population is growing. The urban population is going to be seventy-five percent of the global population. We're talking about two point four billion more people in cities, and 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 then you start to say, how are you going to serve them with personal? Now, here's the key. A lot of people say, well, why not take the train? Why not take the bus? There's the question of public transport that that could fill in, but that's like the trunk lines. That's like saying. Um, everybody needs the internet, so we're going to lay fiber everywhere. But everybody did that in the, 19, in the late 90s, and it was called dark fiber because it was fibers lying in the ground that wasn't connected to the final point of, of access, which was the living room. And, and so the problem is that you, you could build a lot of dark fiber out there and build a lot of infrastructure for people to use, but unlike dark fiber, which costs you nothing to leave it in the ground, building uh, a lot of lines of transport without utilization is going to uh, cost so much and not recover any of its cost that that it puts people off altogether. I, I'm not ignoring public transport. I just don't think it can serve end to end. So in terms of carbon, let me, let me summarize what I think we're saying here. That if you replace a whole load of unbought cars that would otherwise be bought in the developing world, in Africa, in India, um, with micromobility, then you cut the potential carbon emissions that would otherwise have occurred. But equally, in the West, where people are already driving, you've got the potential, because it creates fun, for people to make more journeys than they would otherwise have done. And basically, what we rely on... In so doing, it unmasks the grotesque thing that the car is. It, 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 what we need to do isn't beat people over the head with statistics, is to just hold up a mirror. And th- this is what COVID has done. The crisis has uh, dropped uh, the mask a bit, not all the way, but you can see the city differently. 
if it's not filled with traffic. The, 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 the Dutch went through this in the 70s when the oil crisis and a lot of safety, safety concerns with cars um, and, and protests to, 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 uh, to, to bring this to everyone's attention. So we don't want cars in our cities in beautiful Amsterdam or Rotterdam. We just would lo- rather have this small town be, you know, crisscrossed by, by, by uh, human-sized transport. And, and the, the, the crisis of, of fuel um, emptied the roads. And suddenly people said, well, all that space could be utilized differently. And that's what we're seeing over and over again with COVID. And, and I don't think we go back. I mean, if people will say, yay, we can all drive again. Boom, you're back into the gridlock. In unlocking, and oh, by the way, this is what also micromobility uh, uh, models do today. It's like people see scooters and they're no longer shocked by them. And they, maybe again, 1%, 2%. You have an adoption curve, which is inherently emitted based on imitation where people see something and then act. Again, most people's decision processes are about looking and imitating. They're not about calculating and assessing. 1% do so, 99% look at someone else before they act. And then, um, we're nearly out of time, we're out of time actually, but one, one more thing. Let me just come back to the, the point about public transport for a minute. Um, so I'm a Londoner. Um, London has, I, I think, the, the, the densest bus network in the world, certainly one of them. and the thing that, as you, as you talked about earlier with trains, caused a challenge was that if you take out a whole load of individual and put them into an individual transport solution, you undermine the collective. So if you've got a bus with 100 people on it, and that bus is probably the lowest carbon form of transport and the most space efficient form of transport. Mm-hmm. But if you take out 30 of those people and put them on their own individual transport solutions, suddenly they are consuming more carbon because mm-hmm. an, an e-scooter is not as efficient as a bus seat, but also the other 70 people left on the bus are also generating more carbon because suddenly you had to divide the carbon of the bus by fewer passengers. And that's what caused the challenge for the railways with the invention of the automobile on intercity um, corridors. And you can imagine the same thing for urban corridors um, for established public transport networks. And if we don't want carbon to go up because public transport solutions end up being withdrawn, how do we how do we deal with that? Because micromobility feels like it, it's great. It's fantastic um, until you end up taking away the lowest carbon form of transport as a result. Well, again, uh, on, a, on an uh, arithmetic basis, there are ways to calculate a, a, you know, a, a negative outcome uh, of micromobility. Yes, but the, the effective uh, result uh, necessary. The outcome you need is that of uh, reducing the, the the overall global eight billion people um, emissions, and the 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 road there is somewhat indirect. And this is my point. Now, again, if if I were to take the uh, the transit, and again the 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 the, the deterministic approach, or rather the um, the deliberate approach uh, of uh, reaching your goal, uh, we as analysts, as as um, as thoughtful people, will will say we need to get there, and this is the road there, and that 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 sequence of events we need to see them in clarity before we make the journey. Reality is far worse than that. Uh, it is a meandering path, inefficient and indirect, and yet 
it's more likely to reach its destination than if you absolutely chose this deterministic path. And this is this is the this is the paradox of of innovation is that those who choose to to you know direct it fail and and those systems which are indirect inefficient circuitous end up succeeding uh, which is sort of like you know a planned economy versus an unplanned economy typically you know uh, you would think that a planned economy would work so much better because you you know that is what the Soviet Union tried um, and and so the the point of of my you know thesis here is that historic and it's based all on historic data and I, I you know it's very difficult to find examples of of deliberate planning leading to a successful outcome uh, when it comes to such large systems it, is that you have to have faith in the um, uh, in, in the way of uh, uh, of of low-end disruption right that that it sort of finds its way to an optimum now here's uh, on on the point about public transport again I yes on the basis of measurement of footprint, you could argue. But what, what often happens with these measurements is that you're missing something from your equation. So the problem is a lot of people will not take that mode because, they again, it doesn't complete the journey end to end. You could argue the same way if you had, if it was the year 2000, you said we need to provision internet to every citizen on the planet. Here's the way you would do that. You would know the calculate, you would calculate the cost of, of a bit of transmission through uh, fiber optic cable. You would then calculate how much it would cost to drop a fiber optic cable into every living room on on the planet, and then you would say, "Okay, okay, go and execute on this plan." And by the time it finishes, you realize that everybody's carrying it on the mobile phone, and none of the communication is going through the through the living room, or very little of it, relative to the overall communication that that person is doing. So it turned out that the provisioning of of communication to every person on the planet was wireless, not wired, which is extremely inefficient, not only in terms of bandwidth, which uh, is a finite resource globally and in, in over the air, but also in terms of the costs involved, because you have to build these base stations, you have to deal with all of these generation after generation, each generation requiring, requiring hundreds of billions of dollars of investment. But that is what the industry ended up doing. So the the point is, if if you let the system run its course, what you end up is through this application of energy, imagination, and creativity and capital, you end up with solutions that you never anticipate would even be possible. Now, I'm not saying again; it's certainly going to happen this way, and I wish no ill to the public transport network, but it's probably going to get swamped by micro vehicles uh, because they work end to end, because they're they're always with you. Um, th in that sense of sort of being conformable, they conform to how people live and maybe they'll re cause a restructuring as well of living arrangements. By the way, the car did that. It, it created suburbia uh, in London, obviously not, not so much, but uh, it, it could re-urbanize or re-densify uh, uh, communities because it, it would allow people to say, within 15 minutes, I can do anything and go anywhere I want to go. Uh, this is the French concept of uh, the 15-minute city, and then the sort of urban neighborhoods, urban villages. All of that could be reconfigured, and then we might actually have a flight of people out of uh, suburbs into into urban centers, and we'll see the world more like uh, 
uh, the, the way it used to be, or maybe sort of um, uh, some new mega cities, which are composed of the 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 um, uh, conurbation of of uh, multiple uh, towns, um, where where people travel short distances on micro vehicles. Again, it's a bit of a you know out there futurism, but. Uh, but it's 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 most likely to me, you know, the reason I'm excited about this is that I've just seen this three times in my life, um, and I didn't didn't live live long enough uh, to have seen it for the automobile early on. But the 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 probable outcome, and I'm just putting it together as a pattern. Um, the probable outcome is this um, reconfiguration of of our cities, which I think is is the real success. At the end of the day, um, is not to be going to be measured in in so much carbon. Carbon will be will be improving, but the the fact that we 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 will reconfigure the way we live into a much more sustainable, low footprint matter. Uh, it, we should be asking why do people need cars in the first place, and um, and and that's because of the, where they live. And so why do they live the way they do, and and so on, so on, and so on. So you you end up with a with a real potential for, to transform society, and 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 you cannot imagine right now or quantify the way that uh, society will be. And my only struggle, and I, I will say this as a, as a, as a sort of point out that I'm not. Uh, Purely idealistic. My my struggle is is about the rate of change and infrastructures which are physical like this in the world with with streets and buildings uh, are far slower to change than the telecommunication networks. Um, though again, back in the nineties, few would have argued that we could go uh, cellular for everything. Um, but th that still took 20, 25 years. And the question is only that: Do we have uh, the forty years it might be necessary to transform the way the Dutch did? I promise my previous question will be my last, but this, I promise, will be my last. I absolutely mean it. Um, when we think of the future of this, you can imagine a world in which micromobility is replacing car journeys. And you can also imagine a world in which micromobility is replacing public transport journeys and not car journeys. What do you think will make the difference between the two? Do you think it is it is impossible and it will be uncontrolled? Or do you think there are things that we can do as governments, as society, as individuals that mean that it becomes a future in which micromobility replaces carbon and cars as opposed to micromobility replaces public transport. Well, the car is so fragile. The car depends on one thing and one thing only. People say, oh, it's about fuel and it's about uh, production capacity, factories. No, it's parking. You, you can change uh, the car's density uh, or motorization by by a pen the point about parking and when you realize this fragility is that wow it's really about land land is actually a very very fungible meaning you can convert it into 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 capital and you can trade it and you can transact it and therefore you securitize it and then you begin to think about how to uh, how to make the parking of the world into a token that can then be uh, handed in for something else. And if you think about that, it's like, oh my God, we can unlock trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars, which people's eyes light up, not about, oh, sorry for lo losing my car. They're like, I'm going to be rich because I'm not going to have a garage, or I'm going to be rich as a city because I'm going to eliminate parking. All this can happen if you unlock that value. And and so we think about, uh, you know, like Airbnb unlocking all this excess excess inventory of, of empty spaces in our homes, 
or um, you know, this is the sharing economy, or uh, Uber unlocking the spare time that you sit in front of the TV instead of you go out there and give people rides and get paid. Instead of watching TV, you can get paid. Wow, who's not going to take that offer? And then, um, and then you have the, the therefore the the potential to unlock parking, and that's the like that. It's a flip of a switch, and suddenly people don't think about cars; they just think about getting rich. Now, about transit, and this is where the the problem is that it's kind of like in the middle. Um, it, it, you know, there are things transit could do to help microbite, for example, allowing a vehicle to come on the vehicle on the bus with you. In the UK. You know this well. Brompton was invented primarily because it fit on the tube or it fit on the train to the tube. And, and you didn't have trains large enough to accommodate bicycles. In some countries, there are such things. In Finland, I can take my bicycle. In San Francisco, I can take my bicycle onto the metro. And, um, and, and so if all metros or all bus lines said, oh, and by the way, another thing in America is that you have these bike racks on, in the front of buses. Um, and so people would say, I will take the bus if, again, I can go to it and go from it with a vehicle that is allows me to complete the journey. A lot of people won't because there's a lot of walking and standing around involved. That's fundamental. You, know, so you just survey people and ask them, what would make you take the bus? It's about, you know, in, in, in advanced countries, you have an interlocking system of, of buses uh, uh, like in, in Helsinki, you have buses and, and, and uh, a pass will let you onto any bus, onto any tram. Um, and then it'll let you get onto the city bike system. So the, the, the thing about micro is that it actually lives very well and happily with other modes. It can live with a car. It can, like I said, throw it in the trunk or put it on the rack, put it on the roof. And you can integrate those two things much better. An Uber driver could, should have a bike on the back of every car. If they did, then they could say, hey, we're stuck in traffic. Why don't you hop out, hop on the bike, finish your journey. You'll get there twice as fast. Here's your bill. That would make that would make the whole Uber trip so much more fun. And the driver can get the hell out of being stuck in traffic and go off and take a ride from the airport, which would be much more lucrative. So there's all these things in, in the details of how to piece together multimodal trips, of trip chaining and all these other stuff. And you just glue it all together and you provide or rather uh, seamlessly glue it because you could do it. You know, Google could step in and do this with maps. They could simply unlock a. a trip chaining by by allowing people to plan their journeys as a set of linked trips in which and, and in doing so they would get a commission on uh, serving up the right mode at the right time and I think what the beauty of, of transit is that if we can offer something to the transit authority and say hey we could increase your ridership but you have to accommodate micro in some way either through uh, reciprocity or through through having a, a, a way of, of, of carrying the vehicles. Um, and and they're, they're slow. That's the trouble. They're slow and not what you call early adopters. Uh, and I think they'll come around. Uh, some are more progressive than others. But this isn't a, an existential question, in my opinion. It's more about having uh, that mode, that, that lump in the middle, be uh, a part of a mesh that is, that is the car is exclusive. Micro and transit are not. They're, they're, uh, they can, they can uh, conform to something else. The car just needs everything for itself, which is why it also ends up being 
uh, the choice that usually plays with nobody. Uh, and, and that's that's why I'm still confident that the solution can happen, which involves micro uh, and and transit. I uh, will be much better than than what we have today. And, and by the way, also with autonomy and with sharing and all those other things that cars can do, micro will play along with all of them. Uh, and, and it's it's the most conformable. It's just like a phone. The reason you have a phone with you is because it goes right in your pocket. And the reason you don't have a laptop with you is it doesn't. Period. Fantastic. So the one liner is make parking fungible and make trips multimodal. Absolutely. Um, that, that was brilliant. That's a yeah. great, great place to stop. Thank you so much for joining me on the Freewheeling Podcast today. That was a really fascinating conversation. Thank, Thank you. Well, that concludes the Freewheeling Podcast for this week. Thank you very much indeed to my guest, the founder of Micromobility Industries, Horace Dediu. And thank you very much to you for listening. I'll be back with another guest next week. In the meantime, do go onto the podcast store on Apple or Google or wherever you listen and give the Freewheeling Podcast a rate and review. I'll see you again next week. Thanks very much indeed. Bye. Bye.